Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thank you, Tom, and welcome everybody to another episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Podcast. Uh, today, our topic is going to be around uh, corporate strategic planning, specifically mergers, acquisitions, selling a business. Uh, many of you who listen to our podcast religiously are entrepreneurs and business owners, and uh, we thought it would be a, a great topic to bring to the table today. Uh, you might be asking, why now? Uh, since I know everything everyone has been reading in the financial media has said that 2023 was certainly not a year that seemed set up for a lot of M&A or, or set up to be to be uh, a good environment for M&A with much higher interest rates, uh, borrowing costs obviously higher because of that, private equity firms and banks pulling back from certain markets to try to protect balance sheets and things along those lines. Uh, yet, you know, to date in 23, there's still been some pretty significant deals done. We've seen Broadcom by VMware. We're seeing Microsoft hopefully getting to the finish line and purchasing Activision. Uh, Johnson & Johnson made a big purchase this year of a Biomed. Uh, and so it's not like the environment itself necessarily dictates activity. And so, you know, if you're a business owner and you think to yourself, well, there's a lot of strategic options that I've been contemplating, but now's not the right time, that may not always be the case. And as we always tell our clients with anything, the sooner we start talking about it and the sooner we start uh, thinking through the potential options, it may turn out to be that conditions are not ideal at present, but at least we're having those conversations. We're talking about a plan A, a plan B, uh, and, you know, we, we've now got that that built into our um, you know, into our into our relationship, and so you know one of the things we've been very pleased with is that Rockefeller uh, Global Family Office and Rockefeller Capital Management, we have a wonderful uh, collaborative relationship with our strategic advisory. Strategic advisory is our investment bank, um, but I think as you'll see today, there are are many differences between our investment bank and those that. We may have come into contact before, whether those are uh, mainstream Wall Street investment banks or boutique middle market investment banks. And so I'm really privileged today to have my dear friend Emiliano Roman on the call with us today. Emiliano is uh, one of our senior uh, bankers in the uh, Rockefeller Strategic Advisory. I'll read a little bit of Emiliano's uh, bio so that uh, you get to know him a little bit better. Emiliano is the Managing Director and Head of Consumer and Retail at Rockefeller Capital Management. He's based in New York and leads Rockefeller Strategic Advisory, capital raising, merchant banking activities across consumer and retail. He has over 15 years of experience in M&A and advisory, capital markets and principal investing. He's completed over $100 billion in transactions across a broad range of consumer facing industries. He joined Rockefeller in 2020 after being at Morgan Stanley and UBS. Uh, he has degrees from Texas A&M, uh, both a BBA and an MS. 
Um, and he does a lot of other nonprofit activity, including sitting on the board of Glasswing International, which is a nonprofit organization that operates health, education, and community development programs for underprivileged children in Latin America and in and throughout Latin America. So, Emiliano, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in uh, in your podcast. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, so, I, I, I mentioned in the in the intro that uh, you know, Rockefeller Strategic Advisory is our version of an investment bank, but I, I wanted you to talk first about Rockefeller Strategic Advisory, specifically what makes it different than the larger Wall Street investment banks, and you know what drew you to come here from, you know, I, I know a great career where we originally met uh, at Morgan Stanley. Absolutely. Well, I think before I answer your specific question or questions, let me, let me take a step back. I think for the benefit of the audience, it's probably good to level set on, on how we're set up at Rockefeller. Um, but as you know, and, and some in the audience know, we find our firm finds its origins in Rockefeller and Company, uh, which was Johnny Rockefeller's family office. Uh, founded in the late 1800s, we were a single family office from uh, 1882 to the 1970s, became a multifamily office in the 1970s. And then in 2018, under the leadership of Greg Fleming, um, the firm was recapitalized and relaunched under the name uh, Rockefeller Capital Management. So we have three businesses. We have the global family office business, which you sit on, Michael. And, and as the audience probably knows, uh, th that business manages money for ultra high net worth and high net worth individuals. We have um, an asset management business, which is a business that existed on the Rockefeller and Company. Uh, and it's one that manages a number of strategies, mostly long only equities, but there are a number of other things in there as well managing uh, the funds of the clients of the family office, as well as a number of institutions. And then the third business, which is the business I sit in, you can think of it as a, as a boutique investment bank with direct investing capability. So we do two things. We advise uh, mostly founders and families. We work with corporations and we work also with a few um, uh, financial sponsors, private equity firms, uh, but it's mostly founder-led and family-owned uh, focused. And then we also um, we also originate, structure, and deploy um, the funds of the family office into private uh, investments. And I've uh, that is called the second half of my uh, of my portfolio. So <clears throat> I think what makes different um, the um, call it the strategic advisory division within Rockefeller relative to other banks is that um, a lot of the uh, uh, there are a lot of the, the business, a lot of the wealth that has been created in this country is actually wealth that comes from business owners, right? Uh, Greg Fleming talks about this. He headed investment banking at Merrill Lynch before becoming the president of Merrill Lynch and then went to bank to uh, Morgan Stanley to run wealth management. And, and, and he will tell you that when, you, when he reflected on his career at, at these two storied institutions, the wealth management division and the investment bank never really managed to develop a mousetrap that really worked where there was really a symbiotic relationship that that worked and when he came here re recognizing that again a lot of the wealth in this country is in fact created by business owners the notion of managing money for ultra high net worth and high net worth individuals married with an investment bank focused on 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 boutique style advice was a very, very powerful structure. And, and what he needed and, and what he needed to do was was recruit the right uh, individuals to come and work on 
on the investment banking uh, side of things and create the right uh, set of incentives to actually make sure that that partnership worked. So what Rockefeller has done is actually um, optimize that model, which is a model that large banks have not been able to do. And, um, and, and, and it's done it in a way that actually has created a, uh, a set of incentives that, that, that has led to this partnership that, for example, you and I have, where we've advised some of your clients on uh, what it has turned out to be some of the most important strategic decisions they've had to, uh, they've had to uh, face with respect to their own business. Um, so with respect to my career, I think, listen, I, I came here after spending 17 years uh, at, uh, um, at Morgan Stanley and at UBS. I spent about seven years um, at, uh, I spent about seven years at UBS and I spent close to a decade at MS. Um, a lot of the work I had been doing already at Morgan Stanley was focused on family-owned businesses and also founders. Uh, and, and, and being able to focus mostly on that side of my portfolio, as well as actually working on the private direct investing uh, elements of the, of the business that I described earlier, I think collectively made it you know, a very interesting proposition for me. Absolutely. Um, so before we move on, explain a little bit to the audience about the private direct investment side of the business, because I, I think people are pretty clear about the M&A advisory or, or or that piece, you know, if you if if there's we have people listening here that have businesses that at some point they think of selling, merging, acquiring competitors or strategics. Obviously, we work or you work in that sphere to help them consummate those types of transactions. But talk a little bit about the uniqueness of our ability also now to take situations like that and potentially turn them into direct investment opportunities for clients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think generally the um, what, what we do is, you know, we have we have professionals who have been, who are industry specialists, right? In my case, I am a, uh, I would say my areas of expertise are consumer retail, food and agriculture. Those are, those are the places where I spend, uh, you know, most of my time. And obviously consumer and retail are two very broad uh, industries. Um, Food and agriculture are perhaps more, uh, um, you know, more specialized. Um, but the the so because we have the industry expertise, we've built and and we've worked at larger institutions over time. We built a network of contacts, both in industry uh, and then you know capital owners, call it pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, as well as private equity firms, who make uh, private private investments into. You know, attractive businesses. So, in my situation, for example, I uh, you know I leverage my network and my access to originate direct investing opportunities in private businesses. Where, um, you know, as you guys know, uh, you know, over the past few years, the opportunity to achieve outsized returns relative to public markets um, have been the prospects of achieving that have actually been much better in private markets. So um, when we find a business we like, after after studying thematically the the industry and developing a thesis on that specific segment, um, you know we we pursue what we think is a uh, a winner in a specific industry, um, and uh, and we generally participate in a round. Uh, and what I mean by round is a um, you know a structured uh, formal capital raise 
for a growth stage business where we come in and invest alongside uh, well-heeled institutional capital. We're, we're technically, we're, lead, we're, we're generally not, re, not leading these rounds. We participate again alongside other investors. Um, we make an investment that is between, you know, 25 and $50 million. Um, we generally take a board of service seat um, uh, associated with that, uh, with that investment. And then we set up a vehicle, a feeder vehicle that basically um, amalgamates capital from the clients of the family office. And that vehicle makes an investment directly into the cap table of the business. Um, because I, in my case, I've been a student of, of these segments that I highlighted earlier. Uh, you know, we can develop a thesis around the industry, the business, the management team, and the, and the opportunity for value creation over a, you know, two to five year period uh, before a business is exited either through generally through an IPO or an acquisition by either a private equity firm or a, uh, um, uh, you know, or a strategic player in that specific segment. So again, something super unique that we're able to do on our platform where we can bring these types of private placements to clients through our, you know, through our investment, quote, quote unquote, investment banking relationships. But then, as you said, create a vehicle where clients can actually invest into that capital funding round. That is exactly right. Awesome. So um, let's let's pivot from that back to the sort of the the, the core business, if you will, of strategic advising. And uh, again, you know, I, I know that we get a lot of of business owners, family business owners, entrepreneurs uh, on our podcast, listening to our podcast. And so I wanted to start out by asking you, you know, when you when you first meet a business owner, what what are the what are the what are the main Kind of how does the process work? What are you, what are the main factors you look for when you sit down with a new prospect, for lack of a better word, um, and 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 to, and helping them shape their their corporate strategy? Because I mean, I know we'll talk about it a little bit later, but you know, you and I worked on a particular case where we sat down with the client, and the idea of sitting down and going in was we're going to try to sell the business, but that's not exactly what happened. So, how do you go into those conversations without? necessarily a point of view, but to try to help the client get to, you know, what seems to make the most strategic sense for them in their business. I think, I think the, 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 the most important, um, the most important facet of that discovery process is understanding the objectives of the entrepreneurs or the founders of the family, uh, uh, you know, patriarch or matriarch running the, you know, the specific business. Um, and I think everything else around crafting a strategy either to acquire, sell, or merge a business or to recapitalize a business really should stem uh, from those objectives. And what I've, what I've encountered is that oftentimes um, these entrepreneurs who are great at what they do, these business owners who are great at what, are, are what, at what they do, they don't necessarily take the time to actually think about where they wanna be in one, two, three, five, 10, 20 years. Um, and, and I think, and, and, and as part of that, again, um, discovery process, what I would say is, I, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, uh, the industry, talking about their personal objectives, but importantly, talking about the strategic objectives for the business. Um, and, 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 and from there trying to craft a path with respect to what could make sense for this business. Uh, in the context of achieving those objectives. 
Um, to your point, we started, uh, you know, one of your clients, a, a long uh, standing relationship for you. Uh, we started, this is a family owned business that has a, um, uh, a retail component, a multi-unit retail component associated with it, but it also has a heavy industrial piece to it. And because of my multi-unit retail experience, we ended up spending time with this specific client. And, and to your point, when we started having the conversation, uh, we thought that this was going to be uh, a company that we would end up selling, which is frankly most of what we do uh, from an investment banking perspective. Um, uh, but along the way, and, and, and included in the context, even the first set of conversations, he made it very clear, the CEO of this business, your client made it very clear that there were probably two or three portfolios of of comparable businesses or, or call it stores that were owned by larger corporate owners in that specific segment where uh, where his business operates that would be of interest uh, in, in the context of potential acquisitions for him, um, you know, along the way. And, uh, um, you know, five or six months later, he called and he said, you know, as you guys may remember, we talked about the landscape uh, and, um, uh, corporate ABC called me uh, a couple of days ago to tell me that they are actually going to sell their business and they asked us if we would have an interest in actually uh, buying it. And they were running a process. There were no investment bankers advising the corporate, despite the fact that this is a multi-billion dollar um, uh, public business that, that actually had, uh, uh, again, a, a small business in this segment um, that, uh, that your client is involved with. Um, and we ended up actually helping this client double the size of, of their business um, uh, by financing an acquisition entirely with debt in a very, very difficult market, by the way. So we ended up advising them not only with the, with the valuation, the structuring, the tactics associated with the M&A component of the transaction, but also helped them raise the capital and secure the funding necessary to be able to uh, uh, to. Uh, achieve the acquisition. So <clears throat> I think it, it goes back to the whole question of objectives, right? This entrepreneur was open to the idea of selling, but I think he understood also that there were, you know, a handful and literally probably less than a handful of transactions that would be truly transformational uh, to expand the size and footprint of his business. Uh, and, you know, five to six months after that initial conversation, uh, you know, the opportunity opened up to actually double the size of the business by acquiring assets from this large corporate that was divesting them. Which was a, which was an amazing journey that we all went on together. And I also think, you know, no different than the relationship that we've created with our clients. It's been through a lot of experience and, you know, and, and trust is created. And, I, you know, I think, again, here was a, here was a process that could have gone very straightforward. The client came in with a one notion. You could have said, okay, you know, if that's your notion, let's follow along with it. But you know, that really didn't turn out to be what was uh as you said, in the in the, you know, inside the context of what the what the family's objectives really were for the business. And by unearthing that and helping them uh navigate to a different solution, again, I think that just builds a lot of a, a lot of trust. And and I I don't think that this is the last transaction we do with this particular business it's probably just the first and so you know, with that being said i'm sure you know, there are situations you come to where you you interact with business owners where 
either A, you feel like they're on the wrong track, they've got some misconceptions, or they may even be making some mistakes. Like, what, what, what does that look like? I mean, I know you and I were on a call once with a different one of my clients who was looking to sell an e-commerce business. And, you know, he had gotten himself in a bad situation with another advisory uh, uh, boutique. He was under like, a, you know, kind of a lock and key, couldn't get away. They were telling him what the valuation they thought was there. You thought that that valuation was completely out of line with reality. And so how do you help people who are sort of maybe have misconceptions or are maybe walking down the wrong path? How do you help them kind of right the ship or, you know, kind of give them value added advice in a situation like that? Yeah, I think the, 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 as I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, I think having partnering with someone like you who has um, a, uh, in some cases, uh, a multi-decade or a 10 plus year relationship with a lot of these clients where they've trusted you with their net worth um, as a as a financial advisor uh, helps incredibly uh, because it gives uh, a completely vantage point to the to the dialogue than you otherwise would if that ten plus year relationship didn't exist. So I think the notion of having that. A entree point is is uh, as part of the of the broader effort to provide advice. I think it's actually very very important. Um, listen, with respect to um, having difficult conversations with clients, I mean, I I would say uh, one of the biggest risks, uh, and this is this is a warning to um, uh, some of the listeners who may find themselves in these situations, is that. You know, investment bankers are actually incentivized to get a deal done, um, and and they get paid for the most part only if the deal gets done. So along the way, that creates a you know sometimes the wrong set of 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 um, incentives uh, with respect to the behaviors that actually will dictate a uh, you know the advice that these investment bankers uh, you know may uh, be providing. Uh, in the, I get what, what what makes a difference, and this is a fundamental difference relative to Rockefeller Capital Management, is that if we are advising a wealth management client, a client of our global family office, a strategic transaction in the context of a merger, an acquisition, or a recapitalization of the business is really part of a broader relationship, as opposed to a one deal, and and that's it, which is what happens typically when you are. You know, when you get a you know a boutique that is advising a founder, generally when you do that, uh, if I were to work at boutique ABC, uh, not at Rockefeller, I would um, you know I'd get a deal done, I'd get paid a fee, and then I would move on. And and generally, if I'm selling the company, it's really one deal that I'm doing for that client, and then I move on. When you're dealing with um, when you're dealing with a Rockefeller. Um, global family office client, the dynamic is very different because we are focused on actually building a relationship where if we end up selling the business, we want to continue to counsel that client as to how they're going to invest and how they're going to manage the proceeds from the sale. It, and that fundamentally creates a very different set of behaviors than, uh, than if the relationship actually stopped at the end of the transaction. 
Um, so having said all that, I think one of the one of the you asked, how do you get things back on track? Listen, I think that delivering the right advice um, in the long term um, uh, will always be the right answer. Uh, the right advice um, may not be always received well by a client upfront. I've you know I've dealt with that situation multiple times um, along the way. If the client doesn't agree with the advice that's being provided, oftentimes it leads to you know a rupture in the relationship. But I think uh, over time. In, in my experience, doing the right thing for clients, putting putting their interests first, and delivering the right advice, is the is the only way to really conduct yourself in this line of business. Absolutely, and and not only have we seen you do that, but you know it's also very evident to us that uh, you know the, the the most important thing about the client is that they are a Rockefeller client. They're a Rockefeller client within our family office business and. The advice we're giving is to be additive to that relationship. It's not to do a transaction. It's not to incent them to go down a path that may or may not be part of their strategic thinking so that we can earn a fee. It's really to enhance, as you said, enhance an already valuable relationship, make it even better. And sometimes, like you said, it may be asking us, we may be asking our, we may be selling ourselves out of a potential deal opportunity. We may be telling the client, no, it's not a good time for you to sell your business, or it's not a good time for you to make this acquisition, which again, to use, to your point, is less common in the typical world where, you know, transaction fees are what may, you know, drive uh, decision-making. So I think that that's been very evident to us uh, in our experience with you guys, and, and and clearly that's the way that you you're approaching it as well. Um, I, I wanted to ask you to give maybe a few examples of some deals that you've worked on, um, and maybe some of the you know the key positives or 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 challenges you you've taken away from those deals. Yeah, well, so I think it when you think about the things that you can control, and let's put aside the things that you cannot control. Uh, when you focus on the things that you can control, I think preparation um, is always important. And and by preparation, I mean having the right team in place to uh, pursue an acquisition uh, or to uh, you know sell or recapitalize a, a business. And by having the right team in place, I'm talking about the right uh, internal team within the company, um, uh, whether it is the the you know the management team. Uh, or other business advisors, as well as the right set of external advisors, uh, financial, legal, and accounting advisors that can help you, uh, um, uh, you know, achieve an objective. So I think one of the one of the so preparation around team uh, is important. I think it's also important to have when you're thinking, particularly when you're thinking about selling a business, it's going to be very very important to have, uh, and this may seem very basic. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, a clean set of financials in a business where data is readily available. And that's an issue that I've encountered, by the way, with with a lot of privately held businesses where you sometimes need to get uh, uh, a, uh, you know, an accounting advisor to come in and provide a, uh, a basically issue, prepare a quality of earnings report that can be used to actually market a business. Oftentimes, if you have the right systems in place and you have the right professionals in place, i.e., you know, a good CFO, 
I think that that helps um, uh, a ton. And then the other point that I think is important to to keep in mind with respect to the things that that you can control, at least with respect to when you know, when you make a decision to pursue a deal, is obviously to to wait for the right window uh, of 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 opportunity, right? And that's and that's either the right um, uh, window of opportunity to buy a competitor or the right window of opportunity to actually sell your business. Um, of course, uh, market conditions change, uh, and um, and sometimes they change in the middle of a of a transaction, which you know can be fatal to a to a deal if that were to happen. But if you going back to the point about preparation, if you have a set of objectives and you work towards and you have those objectives clear and you work towards preparing to achieve those objectives in the context of a strategic transaction um that preparation will give you a um an advantage relative to changes in market conditions that uh that are unexpected absolutely um i you know i started off this uh this episode by saying that you know, 2023 certainly didn't look like it was shaping up to be a great year for M&A, uh, just because of the funding environment and you know typical sources of capital kind of stepping back potentially to protect themselves from uh, you know what may be coming with a slowing economy or whatever the case may be. Um, I wanted to to obviously I, that was that was my lead in, but I wanted to get your professional opinion on what is going on in the current landscape, uh, funding landscape in particular. How are you advising clients? to navigate the existing environment? And, and is it changing the way that you are advising those clients at all, or, or, or is it, are you still kind of proceeding as normal? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think with, with um, when you take a step back, right, 2020 and 2021 were years of great exuberance in the, in the equity markets uh, and the deal market uh, in general. And by the deal market, I'm talking about M&A and debt. Um, you can lump equity into in, as part of the deal definition as well. But uh, capital markets in general and M&A markets were very, very strong in 2020 and 2021. Um, the, obviously, we entered 2022. Uh, there were some, some serious concerns about inflation and what the Fed uh, was going to uh, have to do in order to, to mitigate uh, um, the, uh, the, the, the impact of inflation on the economy. Um, and then of course, there was a macro, there was a significant exogenous event in, in the, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict that, uh, that accelerated the degradation of the environment and had pretty significant implications on, on the capital markets and, uh, and the M&A market. <clears throat> Leading up to that, I think um, investors, uh, corporates, uh, private equity firms, and business owners were 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 very very worried about uh, the implications of inflation and subsequently interest rates on a potential recession. And and we found ourselves in a situation where over the past I'd say eighteen months we've been uh, we've been worried about a recession that has been uh, perpetually six months away that hasn't happened. Right, and and that has created a dynamic where um, decision makers have actually decided to delay transactions uh, or delay capital investments because of 
you know, higher cost of funding or because of the overall uncertainty in the, in the macro environment. Now, when I think about the sectors that I spend time in, uh, like I said, consumer retail, food and agriculture, there have been very, there have been specific idiosyncratic uh, elements that actually have driven activity in, in those sectors. But when you, when you think about the biggest, um, you know, headline items, uh, I think that probably the most important one is that the consumer has remained stubbornly strong. Um, and, and that actually has, uh, is, is, is uh, reflected in the performance of a lot of these consumer facing businesses that actually have navigated this period of volatility, uh, relatively well, um, with respect to what we're advising clients, I think it's very, very, uh, it's dependent on the segment that they're in and it's dependent also on the type of transaction that they're looking to, uh, to pursue. Um, the market is still uncertain. Um, the the equity market uh, has done very well over the you know the first eight, eight months of this year. Um, I you know I have some questions about the sustainability of the rally, but uh, you know time will tell. I'm not going to sit here and speculate as to what's going to happen tomorrow. The debt market, um, uh, you know, it funding is actually as as you as you very well know, funding is is costlier now. We are at 22-year highs with respect to interest rates. Uh, some of us in the deal business have never really seen an environment like this one. I've been around. I've been doing this for uh, you know close to 20 years. Uh, this is the this is the most difficult funding environment, uh, at least in terms of cost, that I have seen. Uh, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in my career, um, it, it but the market is functioning, and the market is not as as com as complex. Uh, with with the let's say if I compare it to the great financial crisis when when funding was just simply not available. I mean putting costs aside. Um, so I think our advice is really segment dependent, and 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 I will say if I had to take if I had to make a generalization, we've been telling clients that uh, you know if they're looking to sell a business or recapitalize a business, this is not the optimal environment. That they should go back and think about their, um, you know, they should think about their objectives and how they think about those objectives in the context of, you know, the next two to three to five years, um, and then based on 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 how those objectives align with with timing, potentially delay. There have been other situations where, you know, we're dealing with a client right now who is uh, the the patriarch is seventy seven years of age. Um, he has built a a very interesting business with you know three hundred million dollars in revenue that needs to get that that should actually be recapitalized right now for a variety of reasons. Um, and the business of going back to the point about the consumer being stubbornly strong, this is a business that actually has navigated through this period of volatility incredibly well. and we and we structure a solution with a you know with a credible counterparty that will recapitalize the business. At levels that are, in fact, more expensive than we would have liked, but but that's the environment we're in, and the advice we're giving him, because of reasons that are probably more personal in nature, again, linked to this specific client, to actually move forward with that recapitalization. Um, but I think, as a general matter, th there should be a better environment in 2024 for deal activity, even even in the last, you know, the second half of 2023 for deal activity. That I think is probably that 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 has that that has turned out to be the default, probably answer for 
for most of our um, strategic uh, conversations right now. So Emiliano, in our last minute here, um, are there some takeaways that you would want to leave with the business owners that are listening to us today? Um, things that they should be thinking about, current environment in mind or or not? What what are some, what are what are a few things you want to leave them with? Yeah, I would say, listen, always focus on the things you can't control. Uh, always take a step back to 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 craft a a plan, a strategic plan with respect to what you want to do with your business. And whether that is to, you know, to sell it, to raise capital, to grow, uh, to pursue a merger, um, always take time to step back and actually think about that uh, that plan, and and think about it in the context of a timetable, right? Not, not only in the context of these are things that I would eventually like to do. Think about it, put it in the context of how you, you know, what you want to do over the next. Uh, you know, X number of years. And I think the final point that I would make is that if you know you're going to pursue some sort of strategic transaction, it is always um, better from the perspective of a business owner to actually get uh, advisors and, you know, uh, uh, counselors involved. And by counselors, I don't necessarily mean lawyers, I mean, uh, you know, uh, financial advisors involved and to help them think through those through the key issues well in advance of a um of an event absolutely absolutely this is this it's like it's like i always say when someone comes to us with some very aspirational financial goals uh if they've got 20 years to achieve those goals i feel really really confident that we can help them get to that place if they come to us and they've got five years to achieve those goals it makes it a lot more difficult. So with that being said, Emiliano, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Um, as our listeners know at MWM, we pride ourselves on simplifying con uh, complex financial concepts, hence the name of this podcast. And we really appreciate you coming on and taking on an incredibly intricate topic like corporate strategy, mergers, acquisitions, and business sales, and really simplifying that for the listeners today. So thanks so much for being here. We appreciate everybody listening to today's episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, and uh, we will see you on the next one. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. 
This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker-dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.